The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. about the trials of Jesus is a somewhat complex narrative when you lay all the pieces side by side. And here, as in many other ways, each gospel has some aspects that the others don't tell. But as we read today in Luke chapter 23, we see at least two of the primary settings or venues, if you will, in which Jesus was tried. They weren't trials in any true established way of legal procedure. They were really inquests in both cases. Many things were illegal about them. That is a long subject to go into of how the law was violated as there was an attempt to try to put Jesus to death, which of course succeeded. But listen as I read Luke 23, Jesus before both Pilate and Herod. This is God's word. Then the whole company of them arose and brought Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea from Galilee and even to this place. Pilate heard this. He asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. He had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated with him with contempt and mocked him. And Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, For before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man, release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said, why? 
What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. This solemn decision is part of God's own holy word. I remember with some vividness, it's already 20 years, that a rather famous courtroom drama was going on with the U.S. Department of Justice trying to bring a notorious criminal to full justice. The man's name was John Gotti. I'm sure some of you can remember John Gotti. He was the crime boss of the Gambino Mafia family, based primarily in New York. And for years, John Gotti, like Al Capone and others before him, eluded criminal charges. They would bring him into court thinking they had good evidence, something to try him on, and they would buy off the witnesses, or people would just not appear who they thought would appear or not testify very mysteriously. And of course, there was influence operating behind the scenes, or else he'd be freed on some kind of technicality. And I can remember the handsome Gotti leaving courtrooms time after time and getting into his limousine and waving to the crowds as if they were adoring this man who could just avoid justice, even though he, his hands were red with crime. Finally, in 1992, the government's case, which included murder and racketeering and conspiracy, stuck to the man who had been called the Teflon Don up until then. And John Gotti went to prison. The the door slammed shut on him where I believe he sits today, as far as I know, still paying the penalty for his crimes. Amazing that all the powers of the U.S. government and the Justice Department should have that much trouble over many years bringing a conviction to a man obviously guilty of multiple crimes. When we can read in God's Word about the phony trial of a completely innocent man, the most innocent man who ever walked upon the earth, and we can see procedures, if it were our cause today and it's not, to go into all the illegal things that were done where even the laws of that day and the statutes of how trials should happen were just completely thrown aside. No formal charge ever agreed upon was brought against him, just all kinds of shouted accusations. Slanders were made, false witnesses brought, the trial was at an illegal time of day. He didn't have counsel, which they were entitled to even in that time. Due process was not followed. He was never legally convicted. And yet the most innocent man who ever lived was given into the hands of a mob. And the powers of Rome put him to death. Jesus of Nazareth became an outlaw. Not because someone established guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And as a matter of fact, the hearings and the so-called trials that he endured did more than anything else to actually establish his innocence. As he stood, he wouldn't even defend himself. It's not made much of here 
when he stood before Herod, but he wouldn't speak to Herod because of what Herod represented as such a godless man who had been reproved many times before for his sins and and had killed John the Baptist and yet was going on in those sins, Jesus wouldn't even address the man, wouldn't even dignify the man. Here is the innocent one, three times declared by the Roman governor. In fact, if you try to correlate with John's gospel, the, the same account, it seems like there are probably five times altogether that the governor said, I don't find any fault in him. He's not guilty of anything. I don't find any fault in him. And yet we who have learned to understand what no-fault insurance is and no-fault divorce discover here no-fault crucifixion. The man who had to die had no fault found in him. But there had to be some fault somewhere. And that's what I want you to think about this morning. In the first place, I would change channels and take you back briefly to the Old Testament because there's a background piece of thinking that will help you understand what's going on here if we would look at the biblical qualifications for an acceptable sin offering. You know something perhaps about the Old Testament system of sacrifices which God established, now abolished because Christ fulfilled it all. The book of Hebrews amply tells us of that. But once and for a long time, God put in place a system of offering some with blood, not all bloody, but the sin offering that was brought particularly at one climactic time in the year involved people bringing an animal and understanding that in the slaying of that animal, their sin was put upon that offering and taken from them. Now, you can read the detailed things that the law provided for these sacrifices, and, you know, I must say it doesn't make uh, entertaining reading to read about how all these animals were to be raised up and brought in particular ways and killed and so on. You begin to think about all the blood and all the gore involved in the Old Testament sacrificial system. It's pretty amazing. You know, we live in a day when red meat gets to our table in clean cellophane. And uh, I think if we had to go out and kill the cow or kill the hog or even chase down, I saw my grandmother once chase down a chicken and chop its head off. I thought, oh my goodness. If we had to do that, we'd all be vegetarians probably, except me. But uh, it would disgust us. The blood, the gore, what, what would have to be faced to, to even put meat on our tables? I, I wonder how many of you joined me being pretty disgusted this past week finding out we've been eating uh, something called pink slime. Did you hear about the pink slime in our hamburger? Yuck! I hope uh, they all abolish that stuff. Well, you think about the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, and it, it's really amazing to think that on the Day of Atonement, that the high festivals, when people were bringing thousands of young sheep or animals to be slain, there were priests working in shifts during the day to, to just to, to take these animals and cut their throats and put them to death. You think of the blood that was flowing. It's something that really becomes repulsive to people. And there are people that say, I don't want to have anything to do with that bloody God of the Old Testament. Give me the loving God of the New Testament. God certainly has no problem with schizophrenia, I can tell you that. He's one God. 
Old Testament and New. But he was teaching something, and even by bringing you to a point of being disgusted, perhaps, to consider it, I call it the great show-and-tell lesson of history. God was showing the consequences of sin that lead to death. Sin means death. Sin brings death. And without the shedding of blood, God said, there's no remission for sin. You say, that? that's terrible. I don't like that. Well, then don't sin, and you won't have to face it. But the Lord's commandment in the first place was sin is a deadly thing. And he established in Israel this graphic demonstration going on for centuries so that people would, I guess, recoil from the gore of it and think that's terrible. But as alongside learning that sin requires death, they were learning that the death of a substitute could also be effective according to God's plan. And so God was instructing them in all of that. Now, we know many requirements, many specific things were set forth about these sacrifices. The book of Exodus 12 talks about a lamb being a year old without blemish or defect. You didn't bring God the reject. You brought him the prime animal, the clean animal that that had no disease. And Leviticus established a principle that they would be set aside for a few days where they could be observed. And there were probably, you know, the equivalent of, of kosher supervisors who came in. I was at the hotel in Jerusalem years ago when a a very self-important looking rabbi strode into the hotel and we were having breakfast and I was told he's the kosher inspector. Come to make sure they were keeping the uh, kosher kitchen. We probably had people like that who said, well, yes, these are the best animals. We have to check them out. But all of this was symbolic. And Hebrews 9.10 says, It was all a matter of external regulations that applied only until the time of the new order. The new order was Jesus Christ. And Hebrews 10.10 describes that new order saying, we believers have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. God's examined, qualified, perfect grade A lamb who could come, and the emphasis of Hebrews time and time again is on that phrase, once and for all, at this moment in history, once for all, to bring to completion the offering of a sacrifice. First Peter 1.19 called Jesus the lamb without blemish or spot, chosen before the foundation of the world. All those centuries, all that blood, you say it seems like such a terrible waste, such an amazing, disgusting thing. Well, God was doing it to make the point there had to be a death for sin. There could be a substitute death for sin. But if one, you would imagine, was going to come and be the substitute for many, once for all in historic time, he would have to be an absolutely stainless, perfect, morally faultless one, none other than Jesus himself. Well, in the second place, then, if we move from those sacrifices, I'd ask you to think about the ways in which we know that there's much testimony to say that Jesus was that sinless one, broad testimony to the perfection and qualification of Jesus as a sinless sacrifice. He was put under a microscope, 
You know, you think these candidates for president are uh, looked at, you know, a careless phrase comes out of their mouth uh, in a, some speech or even some aside at a news conference or something, and bam, the headlines. Oh, Santorum said this, and Gingrich said this, and Romney said this. And, you know, it's like they have to watch every word that comes out of their mouth for how it will be interpreted, how it will be understood. Would any of them, as candidates, ever stand up and say to an audience, why I'm qualified to be elected president because I ask you this question, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? Let them ask a question like that and they'd be left off the political stage forever. And yet that's exactly what Jesus said. In John chapter 8, verse 46, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? And you see, there was a great demonstration going on as he was examined not for three days, but for three years, studied, listened to, watched for people to see what were the flaws in this man? Where would he slip up? And the verdict came back time and again. Pilate spoke it, but he spoke it for many, many people who would say, I can't find a fault in this man at all. Suppose any one of us were daring enough to Say, why, there's no fault in me. You won't find any. Take myself as an example. What if I were to be checked out? You know, maybe you decided, well, we're not quite so sure about this fellow. He's been our pastor for a while, but we better check him out. Call in the FBI. Call in the CIA. Call in an NSA or whoever, whatever government acronyms you want to get on board. And, and let's have a complete check, top to bottom, for a whole lifetime of this senior pastor. Let's talk to his kindergarten teacher. Let's interview every secretary he's ever worked with at any church. Let's talk to his elders at all the different churches, his neighbors, his siblings, his grandchildren. Question them. Get his computers. Look at everything he's ever written. Look up and down. See what you can find. Well, I can tell you I wouldn't be too happy, I guess, to have that done. But I would know that they were not going to come out of that examination unless they trumped something up or invented something. They're not going to come out with a scandal that would somehow turn me out of the church or, or ruin me. But what they would come with, I'm sure, would be many embarrassing things. Asides, I said, wrong attitudes I displayed, unguarded times when I didn't speak perhaps in an honoring way. Or if they could get inside my thoughts, boy, that would really be a zoo. Once they got in there. And of course they could do what the British tabloids do. You know, they could come in with a lot of money maybe. And my wife. Maybe they'd, maybe they'd get at my wife and they'd say, Hey look, Carol Rogers, you've been married to this guy for almost 43 years. $200,000 if you'll tell all. You know when I think about it, probably 10000 would make her sing like a canary. <laughs> but she's not here this morning. They could find out a lot, couldn't they? I don't think they'd destroy me, but they could sure embarrass me. Well, this is what was done with Jesus. People looked at him from every angle. They studied him. They talked about him. They compared notes on what he said. And think of the testimony that was compiled that said, this man has no fault in him. We even have testimony from God the Father 
In the case of Jesus, twice in his earthly life, both at his baptism and at his transfiguration, there was that one of the greatest of all the miracles. A voice was heard. Nobody knew where it came from. You know, you have a really good sound system these days, the kind they have in theaters, and it seems like the voice is kind of everywhere. It's not like it's coming from there. It's, where is it? People heard this voice, and they didn't know whose voice it was, but the voice said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. That was the voice of God. That's the only conclusion the scriptures leave. Highest testimony he could have. Think two of the disciples, if you want people who knew him really well. Isn't that, you know, you say, well, let's, who was close to him? Well, the disciples traveled about with him for three years. They slept out in the open under trees. They, they ate from a common pot. They talked both casually and formally. You get to know somebody, don't you? Your co-workers, your family members, you know their idiosyncrasies. You know their weaknesses. You know the one who brags a lot or the one who, you know, maybe shades the truth here and there. What did they say, these people who were with him for three years, in, day in and day out? Well, John, at the end of it, was willing to say, he's Jesus, the righteous. Peter called him the Holy One of God. Now, some people will debunk that, and they say, well, they were his friends, they were his disciples, they had a case to make, they wanted to build him up and make him look good, and of course, they just presented the positive and overlooked the negative. There are many critics that say things like that. But let me ask this of that critic. Do you, at the end of the day, believe you would be ready to devote your life and literally even to die for a man that you knew was a fraud? For a man that was just some kind of a manufactured image that you had helped to bolster? Would you die for him? These men did. And then we have the less friendly witnesses as well, that of Judas Iscariot. Matthew 27, 4 tells that he had betrayed Jesus, sold him for a sum of money, had great remorse, and said before he killed himself, I have betrayed innocent blood. There was the strange thing too in Matthew 27, the the wife of Pilate, only Matthew tells about that how she came to her husband knowing who was out there on the pavement being tried and I guess sent a message or got him aside for a moment and said, Pilate, get away from that man. Don't have anything to do with that man. I suffered in a dream. The gods gave me a dream about him. He's a just man, she said. And then you think of the dying bandit on the cross next to Jesus who started out heaping abuse on him like everyone else and then stopped and reproved his fellow dying on the other side and said, why, we're just getting the just reward for the crimes we have done. This man has done nothing wrong. We could go further and summon more witnesses. But have you ever thought about the fact that nowhere does it ever say in the Gospels that Jesus apologized to anybody? Does that mean he was a rude man? Or does it mean he never had anything to apologize for? 
It never says that he asked advice of anybody. Hey, I ask advice of people all the time. We have so many experts in this church in different fields. I'll say, tell me about this. Or what, I've always wondered about this. And educate me. Jesus never did that. He didn't need to be educated. He was a perfect man. Pilate gave the judgment that was the world's judgment. No fault in him at all. It was an absolute statement. Not, a, not just, I haven't uncovered it in a 15-minute interview. It was a statement that extended to all the corners of the world. If we called on every citizen of this nation and far beyond, wherever Jesus has spoken or been known, no one would come and say, here's a fault proven against him. And so he fulfilled what Isaiah 53 said. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. He was the lamb without blemish chosen before the foundation of the world. He was qualified to be the sacrifice in a way that no one else ever could be. I want to apply this for a minute as I close today. Here was a phony trial. They decided guilt before it even got underway. He was railroaded, we like to say. He couldn't be blamed at the end of it. The question I ask in the last place then is, who can be blamed? Does anyone get blamed? As a baseball fan, I always have to have a baseball illustration in the spring. Play starts soon. 1996 American League baseball playoffs. The Baltimore Orioles playing in Yankee Stadium. A ball is hit high out towards the wall. A 12-year-old fan, this was in all the news, reached over the wall with his glove way down and grabbed the ball right out of the grass of the Orioles' outfielder. And the umpire waved, home run, home run, Yankees, you win the game. Well, of course, all Baltimore was outraged. You don't recall these things, but video showed very, very plainly that the fan had interfered. He had broken up the play. The outfielder actually had his glove batted away he probably would have caught or at least could have caught the ball. What happened? Now, this isn't real good for Yankees fans. Sorry, Yankees fans. You know I'm not going to flatter you. Um, But all New York rose up. And basically, as I understood it, in all the sports programs and articles and newspapers, the reaction was laughter. The kid got away with it. Isn't that great? Hooray for us. The kid got away with it. There wasn't a big denial to say, no, no, it really was a home run. The response was, the kid got away with it. And thus he became a hero in that trivial sense to a society that says the important thing is what you can get away with. Not are you wrong, not are you blameworthy, but will you get caught? And that's society we live in. The scheme is today, no-fault society. If I'm blamed for something, oh, well, I was sick that day. I wasn't performing 100%. Oh, you have to understand, I had an unfortunate childhood. must have been a genetic disorder. Are you paying attention to the tragic, terrible, pending trial of the soldier from Afghanistan? 17 civilian deaths. It's pretty obvious that the man took the weapon and went and shot these people. Why would he do such a terrible thing? Well, his attorney's already told you. 
I'm putting the war on trial. It's the war. Because, of course, it can't be my client. Murderers, rapists, abusers, breakup of marriage, you name it. We find somebody to blame, but it's never us. And the abdication of responsibility is a great epidemic in our time. Matthew 27 reports an incident about this trial before Pilate that Luke 23 doesn't tell. A memorable scene as the governor saw how things were going. He, he knew what was politically advantageous for him to do. He was basically a coward. So he called for a basin of water, and he, it wasn't that his hands were particularly dirty. It was a demonstration. And he took that basin and dipped his hands in and washed them and dried them in front of the people, saying, this does not rest on me. You can't blame me. I'm innocent of this man's blood. We try all the time to do what Pilate did. And it didn't absolve Pilate from his blame, and it doesn't absolve us. You cannot find self-absolution for any sin you've ever done, whether a little white lie in your estimation or some great crime that would be a felony. Scripture does not offer you the option for a no-fault, do-it-yourself, push-the-blame-away salvation. It says someone is responsible The blame rests on Jesus Christ, but where did the blame come from? It came from you, and it came from me. Acts 2.23, Peter preached the very first Christian church sermon on the day of Pentecost, and he had people right there from Jerusalem, some of whom were probably in the crowds that got so worked up in this mass psychosis of a crowd, you know, where people don't even know what they're saying, maybe, and they were yelling, crucify, crucify, Peter preached to some of those people and said, you put him to death. Don't tell me about the Roman governor. Don't tell me about Herod. Don't tell me about the mocking, cruel soldiers. You did it. And preaching on that day, it says people were cut to their hearts. God, the Holy Spirit said, yes, that's true. I did it. And that was the beginning avalanche of Christian conversion. 3,000 people understood that in one day. What is the definition of a true Christian? I try to make it simple from as much as I can. It doesn't have to be complicated. One definition of a true Christian is the person who can say, I did it. I'm to blame. Jesus hung there in shame and nakedness, bruised, bleeding, abandoned because of me. And in me did 2 Corinthians 5.21 become true for him that God made him who had no sin to be sin for me that in him I might be made the righteousness of God. That's what a Christian is. Not someone who says, I think Jesus was a great man, a very great man, wonderful, wise. Oh, he said amazing, fabulous things. A Christian is a person who said, I was there when they crucified my Lord. I put him there. That's what Paul said in so many words, various times. I nailed him there, all because of me. Blame me, God. 
And in saying that to God, we find out that God's wonderful forgiveness flows and sets us free. The Old Testament book of Leviticus chapter 1 had a word of instruction to people who about how to claim the sin offering that they brought, the lamb. It told that the person was to step up, bring the lamb, put it on the altar, and put his hand upon it and say, this represents my household. This represents my sin. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what God invites us to do in the gospel. It's really so simple, but people keep missing it. Come up to the altar, put your hands on the head of the grade A, perfect, certified, morally pure sacrifice, Jesus. And don't just say to me, oh yes, I did that when I was eight years old in vacation Bible school or 12 years old when I joined the church. Put your hands on him today and understand that the sin of today, the lies, the deceptions, the lusts, The bad relationships, the anger, everything that's in your life today goes from your hands unto his perfection and back to you comes complete forgiveness, new life, liberty. That's God's plan, and that's the gospel. May God bless you to realize it in your life even today. Dear Father, I pray for some here who've never put their hands on that lamb's head, that you might lead them to do that. But I pray for others for whom knowing that was necessary was something long ago, and they say, oh, yes, I did that. Sure, Pastor, I've accepted him a long time ago. I pray for those who need the assurance today that his righteous offering still flows, still applies and is needed as much today, 50 years from that first day of trusting him, as it ever was. Thank you for the perfect, righteous, qualified sacrifice. Thank you for Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.